so what we had gotten started on was um, the kind of the differences between uh, Thai culture and mm-hmm. Western culture and kind of that is a segue into uh, uh, culture from seen from the perspective of the Dhamma. One of the things in fact that's really uh, interesting is, is that people who migrate from outside the United States into the United States will have a different view of the inside of the United States because they already have their old culture to bring in for comparison. Mm-hmm. Where the people who just stay in the United States and never go to any other culture, then they're seeing things like a horse with blinkers on. They've never been able to turn around to see around them. They can only see what they're presented locally to them. Uh, and so um, that tends to make people frightened about a whole lot of stuff that they don't know about. But if they did know about it, they could relax. Mm-hmm. And that's a very basic station in life. And that you can see that a lot of what Western culture is, is it's to keep people under control and the way that some of them are doing it is by keeping them under control through fear and others try to control people through greed. But always in order to control people, you have to lie to them. And it actually is more difficult to control people and to lie to people if they've been to other cultures and they recognize there's other ways of doing things than the same old uh, way that it's done in that location. And so as people get older, they say, wait a minute, I can't let my kids know about that stuff out there. They may change their mind about what I've been teaching them, and that's not a good idea. I'll feel bad. And so this whole idea then of, of conservative gets on. That's why there's so much homeschooling, for instance, in the United States. Is because they want to keep the kids ignorant. Because the unknown is dangerous, you see. Mm-hmm. Why? It's because they've been trained that way. They have been taught that way. That the other is dangerous. And it fits within uh, the natural human instinct. A territorial instinct. In other words, humans are naturally... Uh, predisposed to be more friendly to the people close by and weary or leery or downright belligerent to strangers. That's just, it's part of our instinctual way. You can see it actually, dogs behave exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So humans haven't learned very much on that level. But one of the things that does help about that territorial instinct is go into other territories and become at home enough to where uh, who and what is in the territory is still just part of your territory. 
And so we have a kind of expansive mind in the sense of expanding it into all territories so that we can basically feel safe all the time. Then we can use wisdom to figure out what things are dangerous and we can avoid them with wisdom, not having to be driven by fear in order to avoid danger. Because most of the danger is false positives. Now, this thing that we started to talk about, about the fact that all of my problems, all of my worries, all of my um, fears, in fact, came from the society, starting with my mommy when I was a kid. And that what I've got inside my mind is all of that all of that information that came from society. But I've got a handle on it in the sense that it fits into an instinctual way of living. And so when we live instinctually, we naturally live by a lot of old rules that we've picked up instinctually through ignorance. We just took on the rule without examining whether the rule was correct or not. But now we're going to start examining every one of these rules, especially the ones that we live by ourselves. And as we do, we begin to see, wait a minute, sometimes that rule is good to apply, and in other cases it's not. And so now we begin to use a whole lot more discernment. And in some cases, some rules are going to be just tossed out as best we can. They might quite crawl back in, but if we can catch them, we'll throw them back out again. Hmm. Uh, so... By the way, those thoughts can actually be thoughts about politics in the United States, because everybody's got politics on their mind, right? Yep. Yep. All right. And everybody who's got politics on their mind suffers with the ups and downs of politics. Yep. Yeah. Some of them get downright upset, and almost no one is happy. Definitely, yeah. Well, it sounds like that's not quite much of a world for a Dama dude to hang out in. That sounds much more like a bar fight than it does politics. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. And so we can naturally see then that some things are dangerous. Getting in the middle of a bar that's got a bar fight going on, you don't want to do that. Uh, and politics is just nothing but a, but a bar fight with various drunks drunk on various kinds of power. And so that's something we say, okay, that's dangerous. That can be avoided. And if you look at it, then every time any political thoughts come up, you'll feel bad. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I, I tend to, like personally, I sort of stay out of political yeah. discussions for the most part, but I've seen a lot of people just get really sucked up into it. A lot of people um, are unhappy because of what they're thinking about. Mm -hmm. And some of them have the idea, we've got to have something better than this. And in a way, they're right. 
And a whole other group are saying, we've got to hang on to what we've got. And in a way, they're right. But the ones who want to change things don't really want to take anything away from those. But the question is, how can any of them, or in fact, each one, one at a time, by waking up in some way or another, everyone could wind up feeling good and just forget politics. Because otherwise, anybody who delves into politics gets dirty. Because politics is a dirty business. It's a barroom brawl. But there is, look at it, there is so much about society that's like that. Wall Mm -hmm. Street. Admissions into universities, especially the swanky ones. Las Vegas is all that way, and I'm just naming some of the big recognizable ones, but it's right down to the municipal level. And so what we're beginning to look at is is that um, what we have wound up with as a society, not just in the United States, but generally worldwide, humans have not been able to create a reasonable, decent enough society. Not yet. Haven't been able to do it. But at least it's better than nothing. I think so, yeah. <laughs> That's the point that we have to take. At least it's better than <laughs> nothing at that level. And so this is where we can start into the concept with the Buddha of right view Because we can recognize that wrong view means basically that uh, an individual who has the wrong view has kind of the thought or feeling that work, I can get away with it. It doesn't matter what the rules are or who makes up the rules. I can just go ahead and do what I want to do and I will not get caught or have to pay the price for it. An example of that is the guy who fills out um, in the old days to get the freebies from the record company. And he's already gotten the freebies from the record company, so now he signs up it new with his son's name on it. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that his son now has a record before he even ever applies for a credit card of bad credit. But We think we can get away with it. And in Mm -hmm. fact, all the computers in all of the countries are all about, no, you can't get away with it. This is what record keeping is all about. Okay. That not only did I give you five sheep, but now we've got a little clay tablet with the number five written out on it so that I've got that with your thumbprint in it or something. And now we know we've got a record of it. And you wind up recognizing that, wait a minute, Walmart, their whole business is about that record keeping, not the actual merchandise. They don't, they don't stock their stores based upon the actual physical inventory. They stock their stores based upon uh, their computer models, based upon uh, what was sold because it was checked out. So it's actually quite possible if something keeps getting shoplifted that now the store just doesn't have it anymore to sell. 
which is actually an okay thing, you see. <laughs> because there's no more coming because they're not selling any of them. Anyway, this record-keeping is basically what we're doing in our mind anyway, is we're not just letting things happen. Sometimes we want to keep our own track of things, keep records of it, and we recognize the human and have for centuries. The human memory is not adequate especially when two guys disagree about remembering the same thing and so a lot of human civilization is all about keeping track so that those guys can't get away with it (laughs) this is what we call ordinary right view but in the time of the buddha this ordinary right view was looking at it kind of from a magical point of view, in the sense that uh, the law of karma comes into play, and that is there are good acts that give good results and bad acts that give bad results. And then they put down at the bottom in great big capital letters, no matter what. Now, it's actually quite logical to see, and sometimes you take something good and you get a good result, and you take something bad and you get a bad result. At other times, you do something, you hope it's good, but you don't see any results. And so this is where the kind of idea comes from, oh, you've got to wait for it. You can't have your goodies right now. You've got to wait for the future. And sometimes the goodies are not going to come until after you're dead. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you will always get your just rewards, and this is one of the points that the Buddha makes really, really interestingly in many different places. Is you cannot count on that. You don't know what the future is going to bring. We cannot trust the law of karma, but we do know the law of karma works in the sense that some things happen. And we assumed that because there was an, uh, the, the happening, the cause, if the happening was a good thing, then there must have been something done causing good. But on the other hand, let's say, let's look at this in another way. One example is you buy a stock. And the stock goes up. And you sell it and make a profit. Was that a good buy? Was that a good act? How about if you bought the stock and the stock went down and you sold it for a loss? Now, was that act of buying the stock a bad act? You see, basically how a lot of people think is the result and whether they like the result or not determines in their own mind whether they thought it was a good thing or the act that caused it was good. And so a good act actually is good only because there's a good result. But there's another kind, and that is imagine that the flag is thrown on the field to play the football game or something, and half the, cheer, half the crowd cheers and half the crowd boos. So the question is, was that a good call, that penalty flag? It's a matter of opinion. All right? It's a matter of opinion as to whether it was good or bad. And in fact, there's a whole kinds of things that are good and bad that are mixed together that people can actually realize, oh, I really didn't like that that happened, 
but I can see the good that came out of it. And so even in our own minds, we can see, wait a minute, things are mixed. They are mm-hmm. not really as black and white when it comes to good and bad as we had thought. But we try to enforce this good and bad law in order to keep the civilization going, or at least keep the, the idiots at bay, because the idiots are all, all they know is, number one, they want and they have are full of desires, and two, they think they can get away with it. But then now we have the Buddhist path that starts off with noble right view. And noble right view is all about investigation, to look, to don't determine or think that something is good or bad because you like the results, but it's worth another look, worth a new investigation. And that's especially true when it comes to, oh, well, I've always done it that way. Because now we really need to take a look. Was that the right way to do it just because it might have worked once 3,000 years ago and we've been doing it like that ever since, expecting different results than what we've gotten? I've heard that. (laughs) Is a definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting new results. But there's another phrase that's like that, and that is, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. When I first arrived at Watch Mok, I actually tried that one about meditation with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and he laughed at me, and he says, no. In his English, he says, if at first you don't succeed, look at what you're doing. And that actually is the essence of the teachings of the Buddha. Look at it. Keep noticing. But there's one thing more, and that is is the whole quality is not just dukkha and see it, but dukkha naroda, get out of it. A lot of people say, oh, I've got to investigate this, and so they wallow around in suffering for a long time, one insight after another, they call Vipassana. But the whole mm-hmm. point of the practice is to get out of it, to get yeah. out of the suffering, to come out, to come immediately out of that first noble, uh, noble truth into the third noble truth. This is good. I like it. I don't have to be enemies with anything or anyone. So let's get back now to that quality that we mentioned in the beginning about all of that stuff we've got from the outside. And we bring it inside. Now we wind up recognizing the first two fetters. The first two fetters is, what did I bring inside that I think is me? And why am I still going by all of these teachings that I got from the outside when I, in fact, know that they're not bringing happiness? And then we begin to deal with the third fetter, all kind of wrapped together at the same time, and that's doubt about what I'm doing and how do I get out of this. And so this ends up being the the condition for every beginning meditator to come to deal with, is that first fetter is personality view, which means look at all the junk that I 
collected from the outside world thinking that it was me. And then the second one has that polyword just someday going to get famous, though mostly nobody knows. The word is sila bata paramasa. And this word means actually attachments to the right way of doing things. Attachments to rites, rules, rituals, traditions, old ways of doing things, including laws. And that we attach to them, and then we go along with them. We go along with the crowd because of our instinctual nature to do so. You see, humans in their genes have a socialization. That socialization comes in the name or or the form of uh, the herding instinct, also known as the nesting instinct. And you can see when sheep herd together, when the barking sheepdog is herding them. And how does he herd them? He can't herd one at a time. He's got to get them into a herd so that he can herd them. And sheep will herd because that was a um, a socialization mechanism uh, as a defense from predators way back when. And so they see the dog as a predator, and so he can manage them. Same way, in fact, with people with a king. They want a strong king, but then they got to do what the king tells them to do. And so we have that herding instinct built into us, which in a way is now the root cause of our dependency Something happened. Are you back? Uh, All right. Yeah, yeah, I just lost you for a second there, but. Okay, it's still recording, so everything mm-hmm. is going. All right. Cool. So, um, we then are in the sense of being herd animals. So, when in Buddhism we refer to one of the woeful states as being reborn as an animal. This is what we're talking about. We are easily manipulated and put to work, being told that we will get a reward that we may never get. Except that that's not necessarily any individual who is ever saying that, but rather it's built into the society and everyone gets that message from the society of do what you're told to do. Uh, and we basically, by being socialized, that means that we are now attached to that Silabasa Paramasa. And that if we begin to see uh, the nature of the mind and the fact that so much of um, all of our, let us say, way of dealing with things has to do with that barking dog in our own mind that's trying to hurt us into going this, that, and the other place, except that generally that barking dog is uh, that would be historically for the, the sheep, now for the humans will have a human voice. And that human voice is then telling you to go do this. Wake up in the morning and go to work. 
and then the carrot and the stick is presented. If you go to work, then you'll be successful. If you don't go to work, then society is going to crush you. That's the carrot and the stick. And we donkeys, we follow that carrot and hope we don't get beat by the stick. And so we go along to get along. Ah, but we don't have to do it that way. But in fact, the donkey can do something else. He might, in fact, enjoy the scenery since he's out for a walk. So we begin to change the attitude. This is the way that we begin to change the attitude is, is that, hey, we are the donkeys, but we generally harnessed ourselves up to this um, verbal carriage that we're pulling around conceptualized mm-hmm. as to who I am. So a lot of who I am and my thoughts about who I am actually is the baggage I carry that defines who I am. And a lot of people will do that by defining themselves. Who are you? I'm the cop or I'm the priest or I'm the electrician or I'm an engineer. And when I'm talking about engineering, you got to listen to me because it's obvious that you don't know engineering. You're an idiot. Get <laughs> offline. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, is that the way that we begin to see everything? Is I am this and I am that uh, <clears throat> because we picked up that mantle from society. And so uh, we begin to define who we are referenced into society the question is who are you irrelevant of society well in order to answer that question we've got to throw a whole lot of society out so we can take a look at what's going on way deep down inside or another way of talking about it is quick enough mm-hmm. that it's really not deep it's not down but it's linear in the sense of, of time so something happens really quick in the mind, and then all of this stuff happens. And so by clearing out all of that stuff, we can begin to see what ticks us off. Mm. And that's what the teaching of the teacher Samuppada is all about, is so we mm. can begin to understand how the mind actually works. Yeah. So it seems like that's, like it makes a lot of sense, but it seems like it's kind of like tricky to sort of detach from that while also still, you know, Waking up and going to work every day. Well, and that kind of thing. Actually, the mistake that you made in that mm. was the word all. If you had stated it, I can deal with that and still get up and go to work every day. But you said, no, you said something else. You said, how can I deal with all of that? And then mm-hmm. get up and go to work every day. You see the distinction we're making here? Mm. We're talking about now yeah. just one thing that comes up in this present moment. To yes. where you're talking yes. about all the stuff that's ever come up and all the stuff that's going to keep coming up. Yep. And I am literally buried in the past and the future with all of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so I'll think, like, I I see that happening a lot now where I'm like, 
it's almost any time I go to like ask a question, like I'm thinking about something, and I'm like, no, wait, that's completely irrelevant to like what. Okay. And then I'm just sitting here, and I, I don't know. Exactly. But yeah, exactly. yeah. When you begin to realize that many of the tasks that you give to yourself to do comes out of this mechanism, mm -hmm. that you could call it the task generator. Eric Byrne calls it the parent ego state. Sigmund Freud called it um, the superego. The Buddha calls it Silabhata Paramasa. And he talks about it as a fetter. When, when the transactional analysis people, the TA people that uh, got almost all of their stuff from Byrne, when they talk about it, they talk about a complete integration. But a better way of thinking about it in the beginning, in fact, it, the, inter, the ultimate integration is great. But for a while, what we need to do is to shut down this parent ego state. So that mm. then the adult part of the mind, the frontal cortex, can deal directly with the feeling part of the mind, the child. Allowing the child to find delight and joy. Rather than just having to do what it's told to do all the time. And so this is a way of looking at how do we practice Anapanasati is, is that every time that these old thoughts come up, especially unwholesome thoughts, because wholesome thoughts are going to be, you know, quite okay. Wholesome in the sense of joyful, happy, everything is okay. And un unwholesome thoughts like you're a bad boy, you should have done that, you should have done it better, you got to do it again. You know, that kind of mm -hmm. that's all of that is coming out of the judgmental mind, the parent ego state. And our job in meditation is to catch that stuff happening and throw it out and come back to a state of sabai, sabai. Everything is cool. Everything is mm. okay. And this is what needs to be practiced over and over and over again. But in the process, we begin to recognize how the mind actually works that winds us in suffering or acting like a dumb animal because we're following these instincts rather than saying, wait a minute, I don't have to tell myself to go do that job right now. I don't have to do it. <laughs> I am not a dumb animal. <laughs> yeah. And so um, this whole uh, point uh, here is this is actually the first major job that uh, the meditation student has to do is to clear out this old stuff, not clear it out completely, but clear mm -hmm. out the idea that all of this old stuff is useful, valuable, worthwhile, and I'm going to live my life by that. But rather see it as just a bunch of old stuff that has been driving me along doing things that I really don't want to do. And so we begin to get really in touch with, with our feelings more rather than this dumb dead animal or this 
you know, living carcass just going along to get along. Yep. And so now we investigate. Why am I telling myself to do all of these things? And so this is this is the way of the investigation. But the important point is to recognize it as this is dukkha. This is unsatisfying to be constantly telling myself that I've got to go do this and I've got to go do that and what about this, that, and the other thing. Because that's how we think. And so we can say, wait a minute, I don't have to think like that anymore. I can think like everything's already okay. Yeah. So I'm at this point where I can see that like that's happening, and I'm like, I, I don't need to do all this stuff. And then it can, no, 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 you really probably should do the kettlebell exercise. Right, there it comes again, and you say, yeah, gotta yeah. be out, go. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be happy right now. And then uh, if, like, sometimes, you know, that'll be coming up, and I'm like, oh, man, I'd like, it, it kind of go, like goes a layer deeper, and I'm like, oh, I have to clear out my mind fully, like, right now. No, just but, that thought. Yeah. <laughs> Just that one. And then, so if something like, uh, and so like, just like thoughts seem to be, and I think we talked about this last time, like you start just focusing on your breathing and then the thoughts. And then after that, like the emotions and stuff, like your body. Mm -hmm. So is it, you, you know, sometimes maybe, like there's a thought that is just kind of stuck there. Is it okay to just, you know, breathe for a little bit and just be like, well, that's, you know. Okay. Recognize that really it's not stuck. Mm. A better way of looking at it is that it's reoccurring. Mm. Do you get this, the d distinction? The distinction is, is that it can occur. Yeah. And then you can la, 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 la again. And then you can say it reoccurs. And now yeah. you say it's stuck. No, it's not. So it's, it's not like a, a solid object. It's not a solid object. You can kind of look at it and. It's, it's very lightweight. Out you mm -hmm. go. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> yeah. And by practicing it like that. You get the sense of, I can do it. The sense of, uh, this is possible. Or the sense of, mm -hmm. this, is, this is worth um, developing as a skill. Mm -hmm. and, and when we begin to change that attitude, then that attitude will also help us when we see that reoccurring thought come up again. We say, all right, out of here. I'm the boss here. I have been watching, and you haven't been here for three minutes. Yeah. Yeah, you haven't been here for three minutes, and now you come up. Out you go again. <laughs> hmm. And so those thoughts are really not as stubborn as we give them credit for, which is another way of giving them power mentally that they really don't have which is another way of looking at our attitude. Our attitude is, is that those, those thoughts are powerful and they get stuck in there. 
But a more wise attitude is they're not stuck. They're not heavy. Out they go. And if they come back, out they go again. Yeah. So one thing it's, and I think like early on when I was getting into meditation, that was kind of the attitude I had. And I was like pretty happy generally. Mm-hmm. And then, it, you know, I started, you know, just reading a bunch of stuff and da, 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 da. But, um, like one thing, so I guess in, and I, this is probably just my interpretation of like the little bit of psychology that I've read. So I'm sure it's not, I'm not a psychologist or anything, but it seems like there's this thread of like, oh, there's like this stuff that happened in the past and it's like stuck inside of you and you have to process it and da, da, da. And, and uh, how does that tie in or does it with what you're talking about? Psychology is like, let us say, a group of miners, gold diggers, something out in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And one of them strikes gold. And then they start digging around and they realize that the whole area under them is gold. Mm -hmm. And it's just far too much for them to pick up in one load and carry off. And so they have the kind of attitude that we're talking about here Mm -hmm. in that sense they've made it something really big if the psychologist himself could deal for himself with that his own mother load like that then he would be able to um let us say defend the opposite argument with his fellows and perhaps teach them that no it's not insurmountable you don't have to deal with it that we're perhaps in a way of looking at it too closely. Hmm. We've gotten too close to it. But when we back off and recognize, wait a minute, it only lasted an instant. The reason why it got really big is because we were dwelling on it. (laughs) And so what we began to do is recognize there are better skills to be developed than inspecting dukkha. Then in mm-hmm. fact that psychology mentality has crept into the Mahasi method yeah, and yeah, other yeah. meditation systems. But in fact that dukkha that we're talking about is a small thing that's happening only in the mind right now. You can throw it out and think of something else. You can get distracted. And in fact, you see that done on in mo- movies, especially old ones, on a fairly regular basis when somebody just goes, um, let us say, into uh, an emotional state that's really hard to get them out of. And so what do you do is you slap them. And that <laughs> sensation yeah. of getting woke up okay, and it generally does. Sometimes they don't stop. But that whole idea is get it distracted. Get the mind off of it. So uh, when people are about to fight and one of them wants to uh, uh, really brawl, then somebody will come and say, take a deep breath. 
count to one to ten, you know, all of that. <laughs> in Thai language, they have the word Jayan, Jayan, Kulal, okay, and intervene with them to get them out of and distracted from the heat of their moment. Well, we can do that with ourselves. Generally, because we haven't worked ourselves up to that level of emotion yet, but we could. You know, you can actually talk yourself into really bad feelings. Mm-hmm. Probably have. <laughs> sure, sure. And we talk ourselves into bad feelings on a regular basis, just not that bad. But here's the good news. If you can talk yourself into feeling bad, you can talk yourself into feeling good. And that's what Anapanasati is really all about, especially step 10 of gladdening the mind. And that gladdening the mind is throwing that stuff out and having a new thought. And that, and one of those new thoughts is, ah, I see you out of here. And then maybe the next thought, well, I'm glad that stuff is gone. I don't have to think about that right now. I can sit here and enjoy the moment instead. Whoops, stay out of here. Okay, and that's how we go. Hmm. So we don't let those thoughts in. Even the ones that keep recurring, they're not stuck. They just recur. And when they do, the question is, are you going to see them or are you going to let them rain? They will get stuck if you don't see it. But if you see that they've snuck in the back door and creating a rat's nest, you can throw it out. And so the Buddha talks about it in the sense of two kinds of thought, wholesome thought and unwholesome thought. And in one sutta, uh, it goes so far as to say that if you are thinking about dwelling on and enthused about the Dhamma and doing so in wholesome ways, that that will be the trigger for uh, the inspiration that one will go into first John because we're really, really happy about the Dhamma. We feel relaxed and comfortable and uh, the mind is completely full of only wholesome thoughts. Mm-hmm. In that regard, the first jhana is not that rare, not that hard to get into, not that difficult, but it's gotten some sort of magic and hard to do. I deal with it, mostly because people don't realize that the main point is, is that you've got to throw this stuff out. You've got to throw it out of the mind, because if you dwell on it, then you're going to be winding up, you know, just keep digging and keep digging, and there's just nothing but gold there, there's nothing else, Okay because we're dwelling on it. So it's not that uh, the thoughts get stuck. It's that we get stuck on the thought. Unnecessarily. If we're going to get stuck on a thought, get stuck on a really wholesome, happy thought. That, in fact, is generally what the practice of metta is all about anyway, is getting the students to stick on, repeat, and have wholesome thoughts. 
Hmm. Yeah. yeah. It seems like for me, it just hasn't quite. And it's weird because definitely in the past, there were times when I was very inspired. And, you know, con- like, oh, yeah, I can clean out my mind, do all this. And then uh, right now, it's just not quite clicking like that. But, you know. And then there, that's just like kind of a negative thought, and I just kind of threw that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes, I can do it. I can get back. I had it once. I can have it again. Yeah. No, yeah. Problem. no worries, mate. Yeah. And recognize that it really is an attitude, and that attitude has to be developed. And the attitude, the whole point about attitude is the Buddha wasn't shy on it. It's part of the Eightfold Noble Path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're going to practice the Dhamma, you got to practice right attitude. How do we do that? We start with a little bit of right view, a whole lot of right sati, enough right effort, and voila, we have right attitude. It comes that way. But the development of the skill of um, right attitude is to continue to get yourself into the right attitude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just in, uh, yeah, pardon? like in the in the present moment. Into the present moment, and it's really nice here. <laughs> yeah. And then you don't have to worry about having the right attitude like five minutes from now or like five minutes ago. It's just nope. Worrying about five minutes from now and five minutes ago is what you've been doing your whole life. <laughs> yep. Now yep. is the time to enjoy that I can do it now. Yeah. And five minutes from now, you can go through that same sequence with the attitude I did it five minutes ago and do it now. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got two attitudes, right attitudes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I did it before, and I can do it now, and so I'll do it again. There you go. And but when, uh, we don't care about when that is. We just know that when it becomes a now, we'll be there for it. Yep. Yeah. So one, uh, maybe a little bit of a tangent. So as far as, like, how much like formal sitting down practice I do. I think in the past it was like, well, there was a point where I really enjoyed, like every time I'm like, oh, this is like my favorite part of my day, sitting down, meditate for like an hour, you know, whatever it is. And then at a certain point it became like, oh, I need to need to meditate now so I can like, you know, be nice and focused for when I go into work and da da So it turned into like a chore and it was just kind of like, you know, Chasing after that carrot kind of thing. <laughs> but, uh, I'm glad you caught that. That's excellent. Congratulations. You're waking up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but. Uh, so you so you took something, a brand new toy, and you socialized it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And All right, well, let's get that brand new toy out and see if we can uncross the socialization and put it back to where it's fun again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's, if it is, 
I, I think it was like some like Tich Nanhat Dharma talk I was listening to and talking about like right diligence. And he was saying that it's like, you know, right diligence is like practicing because you want to. Mm-hmm. So is it just like if I really diligence is really not a good word. Mm-hmm. Diligence is also what we mean by devotion is that you're doing it because you're supposed to. Diligent. Mm-hmm. Also, diligently following the rules or doing what you're told to do. But if we use another word for it, it takes the um, the meaning of slightly differently. Mm. Perhaps you think the word enthusiastic or eager. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So if you're eager to do something, then that's got a whole different quality to it than um, uh, diligent. Mm-hmm. Because in fact, diligent is is one of the good words to talk about a good draft animal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. All right. right. So diligent, we're not looking for eager, enthusiastic. That's the way that we would look at it. In uh, be become inspired or uh, ready to go. Mm-hmm. Eager to go. All right, eager to go where, in this case, eager to go into freedom, eager to go out of the ordinary mind state that we have been in. And every time we catch ourselves in that old mind state, we become eager to get back out of it. Aha, I see you, Mara, was the word the Buddha used. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a different quality of word. And so yeah. I find interesting that where did you hear this word diligent uh or was it an idea you got picked up from something that i said no no it was just some like dharma talk like a podcast something i was listening to at some point okay all right yeah and the description of like uh, you know what right diligence was was pretty much the same thing that you're saying but just they did use the word diligence instead of like but yeah no yeah definitely so if i uh, like you can see why i'd want to change the word though yeah yeah so if i'm like if i do like a 10 minute sit and then i feel like you know what maybe i'll like i really would like to sit for 20 minutes about to start mentioning that if that Mm -hmm. if you've already gotten in the habit of giving uh, your practice uh, an hour a day, let's break that up into smaller sections. Here's Mm -hmm. one of the things that happens is is that um, while it is possible to extend this, the normal human mind has an attention span of about 20 minutes. That's why it's a good idea to start a meditation at 20 minutes or maybe a little less and to kind of maintain that. But we're wanting to do this kind of throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So if you were able to take 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at lunch, 20 minutes in the evening, and then 20 minutes before you went to bed, 
or maybe even just take three 20 minutes or four 15 minutes yeah. or break it up. It's not a matter of which. I'm just dividing up your hour a bit. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> All right. And that the intention is, is to give yourself joy for that period of time and to stay out of anything that smacks of getting later benefit. But rather that you're actually the training is, is to enjoy the moment. Because that ability to enjoy the moment is what we mean by first jhana. And it has gotcha. a bit of energy to it. It's got a pep, uh, mm. the pity. It's got satisfaction. It's got relaxation. And it is freedom from suffering. Yeah. Freedom from unwholesome thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's what we practice. Yeah. So if I'm, uh, like you said, there's this quality of like pep or like alertness, sort of. Um what if I'm like, uh, you know, you're like tired or something and your mind's just a little foggy? Uh, generally, that has to do with one of two things. One, generally, that will happen when people have been sitting for a long period of time. The mind will go foggy. It will mm-hmm. get that way. It will go dull. Um, we're all like that. We can only have an attention span about so long. That's one of the reasons why the old, old, old Dhamma dudes, when they give a lecture, it will sometimes be a doozy. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa would generally start at about 2 in the morning, and he would finish at daybreak. Oof. Yeah. This was on the Buddha days, when the monks were going to be up at night. But he was up for that kind of talk. Yeah, he could do a four-hour. So, uh, but that kind of training of the mind is the results of this kind of practice. Mm -hmm. And the students who are practicing for an hour generally haven't built that up yet. And so the mind gets tired. There are other issues with the mind getting tired, too. And that is um, not breathing. That if we start doing with Anapanasati and make sure that we're getting breathing, then the mind can stay alert longer. And so you can check this out for yourself that you probably won't go into drowsy states if you're stopping at 20 minutes and doing it multiple times a day. Hmm. So I don't need to, like, consciously try and wake my mind up and be like super alert or something like that? No, that's going to happen automatically if you intend to keep waking up and taking a deep breath every time you do so. Mm -hmm. Okay. But in fact, the whole idea of the long breath, understanding the long breath, the in-breath is a long in-breath, and understanding the long out-breath is a long out-breath, that whole quality means we have to have sati there. It's not that we're just taking a long breath. It means that we are watching it. (laughs) We understand that this is a long breath. We understand that this is a long out-breath, which a good word to use is a sigh. 
<sighs> Long out breath. <laughs> and so we have to focus the mind at least a little bit mm-hmm. on that breathing to make sure that that's the kind of breathing we're doing. And the answer would be then why do people get dull is because they collapse uh, maybe uh, thoughts of fearful things or whatnot, and the body will shut down. Very typical in meditation unless the student is um, alerted to it to continue to breathe. Breathing is so important, they, the actual practice was named after it. Anapanasati. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness and- breathing. Watch that breath as opposed to watch the old turmoil. Yeah. And one thing that you, like this was a couple times I talked to you ago, you were talking about uh, like practicing before sleep. Mm-hmm. And that's something I, for whatever reason, it's like I had a meditation habit where in the mornings it's easy for me to sit down and meditate. And then like lying in bed, going to sleep. Like I love practicing at that time for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But it seems weird because it's kind of like like seated practice I'm sitting there and like the idea is to be like aware of breathing in aware of breathing out but then like before sleep you know the goal is eventually at some point you know you're gonna, you're gonna fall asleep mm-hmm. so it seems like that like falling asleep yeah, so, so if you will watch yourself fall asleep and when thoughts occur that disturb you from falling into sleep. You say, ah, oh, I caught you, out you go, and I'm going back into mm-hmm. sleep. Yeah. Hmm. The yeah, reason so, uh, people don't go to sleep is because they're worried about something. Yeah. <laughs> Catch that worry and put it to rest, and mm-hmm. you then can rest. Yeah, Generally, I've... when people go to sleep by when they are worried about tomorrow, and people have literally told me, I can't lay in bed and enjoy myself. I've got to get to sleep. I've got work to do tomorrow. And uh, Yeah, well, with that attitude and worrying and thinking about all of that mm-hmm. work as you go to sleep, that means now you're going to be working and thinking about all of that work while you're trying to sleep, which means tomorrow you may not, in fact, have a good day because you're had a fitful sleep, yeah. not but um, um, etc. So if we can get ourselves into the state before we go to sleep, mm-hmm. it will be less likely to be full of dreams and worries and whatnot, yeah. and we'll get better sleep during the night. Yeah, I've had a couple times where I, you know, do that as I'm falling asleep, and then like my alarm goes off, I wake up, get out of bed, and the first thing I do is just. <sighs> You do that after you get up? That should be the first thing you do when you wake up. The first thing that happens is to wake up enough to take a deep breath before you get out of bed or even think about what am I going to do about that alarm clock. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll I'll work on that for for next time. For for now, I'm just, I got to get out of there and get that alarm turned off. So Yeah, I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. I know. I've heard that before. It's called the... Uh uh, uh, Freud calls it the superego. Yeah. Mm. And Byrne called it the parent. So somebody, when you say to me, I got to go, I got to go, yeah. who did you get that from when you were a child? Yeah, it definitely, it seems like it's just such a, 
you know, you just see your parents waking up in the morning to go to work and then all the media and just the whole cultural, con- like I definitely, yeah. So it wasn't one thing, but it was a whole bunch of it. Yeah, yeah. They all piled in on you. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the next time you wake up in the morning, take a deep breath and say, wow, I'm glad that I don't have to just get up because I'm told to get up. I can get up because I want to, because I like it. Yeah. That is also about that means just... you really got to wake up in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got to really wake up to do that one. So that's yeah. the job is can you take a really good, hold some deep breath and hold some good thoughts right immediately as you wake up in the morning? That'll be interesting. Yeah. Mm. The other one thing I wanted to, it's getting a little bit late, but one thing I wanted to kind of touch on. So, and it, another, th- like that period between being awake and being asleep, it's like there's a lot of. Are you sitting weird... or laying in bed now? Uh, <laughs> laying in bed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, it's a very, like, just kind of weird stuff. Like, you get kind of that, like, hypnagogic stuff like kind of half awake half dreaming like sometimes i'll be like lying there and i'll be like oh man like oh i just fell asleep for like four hours but now i have to get up and go to the bathroom and then i'll look at the clock it'll be like you know two minutes have passed or something and so that's yeah sorry we're gonna we humans were raised in a time in deep history and it's part of our genes to be up at night. The whole Mm -hmm. idea of sleeping at night and working all day was something the taskmaster, the slaver, made up to make people more productive. Because people, and if you... If you've got pets or dogs, you can recognize Mm -hmm. even they don't sleep all night. They sleep half the day instead, and they're up half the night. Cats Mm -hmm. are also the same way. Humans also. Uh, And that um, an example of that is in northern climates, if a guy, someone doesn't get up and restoke the fire, the whole uh, family could be frozen to death in the morning. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a whole quality of a vigil that in more primitive times, somebody had to stay up. The whole idea of having a 24-hour guard is not something that's happened just because the Philistines hated the Jews. No, this was back in the times when we kept guard because there was other things out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so in that regard, it's quite okay and quite natural to wake up in the night. Yeah, I guess what was more like it'll feel like I'd been asleep for you know a few hours, but it had actually been like like just the perception of time was super but weird. That well, that's the yeah. whole point. Yes, mm-hmm. time is relative, isn't it? Yeah, we use a clock, and because of the clock, we think that the time of the clock is the actual time. No, mm-hmm. what you feel and what you're doing in the present moment is your real clock. Mm. And in the time of the Buddha, they didn't have clocks. 
they had some natural things, like how long does a jaw stick go? Well, at the end of the jaw stick, when it stops uh, doing its incense, a few minutes later, a mosquito is going to come, but that's no indication that the monk has got to get up. But boy, when that a Western alarm clock goes off at the end of a sitting time, at meditation, almost everybody's saying, I'm glad that's over. You know? Mm-hmm. But in fact, meditation is a training practice, and training oneself into being in a state that you want things to be different than they are is not the correct practice. We need to practice going in and staying in a state that we really like. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because we're already very well ingrained into the habit of doing things because we were told to do them, whether we like it or not. And we're also very much ingrained in telling ourselves to do things whether we want to do them or not. And so that's what you began to do with your meditation, too. In the beginning, you liked it, and then you got into doing it because you told yourself that you should and gave yourself a whole lot of reasons for it. Mm -hmm. And so now it's going to take diligence. But a better motivator is delight. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, enthusiasm. And so breaking it up into smaller periods, doing it more often during, during the day also has another kind of benefit. And that is, is that imagine that someone sat for an hour every day. He was diligent, sitting one hour every day. And then he went about his life. But one hour a day, he comes back and he sits and he meditates. Mm-hmm. What does that sound like? It sounds like, in fact, I planned it that way, that the other 23 hours, his mind is back into hindrances. Mm-hmm. Which is going to win that contest? 23 hours of, of new hindrances followed by years and years back up of the old ones. <laughs> <laughs> or one hour a day. <laughs> right? So when we begin to look at it like that, oh no, what we need to do is uh, uh, start working in the direction to allow a mindfulness awake mind to have more and more thought moments throughout the day, not but not bunched up all at once, but to have them all throughout the day. And yet many, many people, because they think and see about meditation, they think it is something that's done on the floor in a meditation hall or in front of an altar, and they see all of the ritualized stuff about it. Yeah including the clock. But the clock is a new addition to the ritual. Mm-hmm. In the old days, they would have jaw sticks, and generally there was uh, a jaw stick would last about 20 minutes. So that meant that for one hour set, that's three jaw sticks, and somebody's going to light the, three jaws, uh, the uh, second and third one. And then at the end of the third one, he rings the bell. But mm-hmm. that's still all ritual, you see. That was not the way that the Buddha taught it, and when it's taught naturally, it's not even practiced that way. Mm. The thing to practice is to be practicing throughout the day. Yeah, and so does that start with, like sometimes, uh, you know, like something's going on at work, whatever, I'm like driving, and I'll just take a, a minute and be like, 
just be yeah. aware of While breathing you're driving, in. Taking a deep breath and being very mindful of your driving is a really excellent thing to do. When you're driving, drive. Fully minded of it while you're breathing deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's the right way to drive. Most people don't. They drive by uh, habit or by the reptilian mind. Mm-hmm. In other words, it goes on kind of an automatic pilot. That's why there's accidents, because sometimes you need to be alert. Yep. But most of the time, it's easy peasy, easy to go. You don't have to pay much attention. And so the, you'll start fighting with the kids or on the phone or a McDonald's or all kinds of possibilities that people do. <laughs> but for uh, Dama dudes, drive while driving. Yeah. Breathe. Watch the road. Yeah. And so eventually does it... Like you just end up staying with the breath pretty much all the time? Mm-hmm. Well, pretty much every time we think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you use the word all the time, you'll set a goal for yourself that you won't make and you'll feel bad. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, uh, and I definitely see the that that can happen. Mm-hmm. I'm more curious just, you know, as a result of you know, many years of practice, or what did you eventually get to a point where pretty much all the time? You eventually get to the point of not looking for individual, or how do you back up? You eventually get to the point that you stop looking for eventual points. Gotcha. Yeah, that's an interesting way of saying it. But yeah, to give up those kind of goals, we're not eventually trying to do anything. We're eventually enjoy. If there's any eventually, is right now. Enjoy this moment, right now. Mm-hmm. Enjoy this moment. Be here now. Yeah, yeah. And in so we fulfill all of the um, understandings and and instructions and ideals of Zen. This is it. No place to go, nothing to do. The spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Mm-hmm. And when and when people ask those eventual questions, the old Zen master is saying, you're already enlightened. Sit down and enjoy your enlightenment. <laughs> That's, yeah, that is a different frame of reference, I know. Completely. <laughs> Takes us because the whole society is built on past and future, built on structures. Mm-hmm. And we're learning to dismantle those structures, at least yep. in the mind. Yeah, yeah. And so okay. this is a, a sort of a little deeper, newer, new way of, of practice. Of don't do it diligently. Do it enthusiastically instead. Sounds good. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, Mark, hope to see you again soon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was good talking to you. Great. (laughs) I really enjoyed this conversation. Glad you called.
Yeah, yeah, me too. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.